And it is a tour de force in biblical Christology. It is a pinnacle of biblical passages. It is a diamond in the Christian faith. It is foundational. It is central. It is glorious. And it is life-giving. And today's passage begins with, therefore, and there is a bit more mundane instruction that's contained in this passage. Many of us perhaps would hear our mothers uh, yelling from the top of the stairs during our childhoods, do everything without complaining or arguing, uh, as she perhaps overheard some complaining and arguing amongst the kids in the basement. At least that was my, uh, my own experience. So today's passage begins with, therefore, and it does that for a very specific reason, because the Christian life is one that flows out of the, the work of Christ on the cross. It flows out of the life of Jesus Christ, just as Paul calls us to obedience. So he anchors that obedience in a finished reality, in the reality of Christ. And that provides for us a wonderful picture of the Christian life and our quest for glorifying God in all that we do. And imagine a, a, a father uh, going up to his son and, and saying, Son, I have mowed the lawn for you. Now go and mow the lawn. Right? That wouldn't really make much sense. And that's the way that we need to think about uh, commands in the Christian life as they are related to the gospel. It would make more sense for the father to say, I've mowed the lawn for you, and that's normally your job. I've done it for you. And I've completed that task. Now, gratefully, go and weed the garden or something like that. Right? God has finished salvation for us. And he has done it for us. And reconciliation has been accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. But he does not call us to do nothing in light of that. He calls us to do something, even if he is the one who is continually working in us. So we must never lose grip on the glory of Christ by faith. It is growing in our love for what our Savior has done that allows us to live a life that flows out of that love. The Christian life, in that sense, always begins with a therefore. It always does, because it follows the glory and the comfort of the finished work of Christ. It's a life of freedom. For freedom, Christ has set you free. And what will you do with that freedom? Will you serve the Lord? That in which true freedom is found. So three ideas today. The first is son-centered obedience. Son-centered, S-O-N. Son-centered obedience. The second is other-centered contentment. And the third is joyful sacrifice. Son-centered obedience, other-centered contentment, and then finally leading us to joyful sacrifice. First, first uh, son-centered obedience. We're called to obey. Therefore, just as you have always obeyed, so now continue to do so. I perhaps have uh, shared this story with you before. When I was in high school, I worked in a, a walk-up ice cream shop, Dairy Queen, right over there on Torrance Avenue in, uh, in Lansing. And uh, looking back on it, I, and I've shared this with you before, I really feel for my boss. The team was a bunch of unmotivated, greedy, and uh, complaining high schoolers that were bitter about having to work and were eager to see uh, the boss leave. And when the boss left, productivity went down, tasting of ice cream treats went up, 
and uh, the volume of the music inside the store went up as well. Paul knows that one challenge that the Philippians face is that with him gone, they will be tempted to let down their guard, to become lax in doctrine and in life, and to slip. So he makes this appeal, this idea of presence and absence, not only when I'm there, but also when I'm gone. And of course, Paul's theology, there's a thorough God-centeredness to it. And so he reminds them of God's activity in their life so that they are reminded that God is the one who truly sees them, that God is the one who is seeing all that they do, even as he works in us. This is why we are to maintain fear and trembling. In the midst of that command, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But that is why we are to have fear and trembling in the way that we approach our life, because the judge of all is always watching. We are to have a recognition of our lack of deserving grace, our lack of ability to obey merely on our own and merely on our own power. The one who is, feared, uh, who is filled with fear and trembling is not wringing his hands, wondering what God is going to do with him. The one who has fear and trembling is eminently aware of how much of an, off- of an offense it is to sin against the holy God. It's someone who has a true grasp of the holiness of God, a true grasp of the severity and the ugliness of sin. It's a person who who does not sin lightly. It's a person who does not abuse grace. Romans 6, let us continue in sin that grace may abound. That's someone who is not filled with fear and trembling because they have not accurately judged God or judged sin. So Gregory the Great, early church father, I've been reading a bit of him lately, he says this. He says, everything that shines before human eyes must also be kindled with the flame of internal love before the sight of the hidden judge. God sees the heart. And the knowledge of that ought to fill us with fear and trembling even as we approach life in the freedom of Christ, in the little children's catechism that we teach to our kids, one of the first questions is, can you see God? No, I don't see God, but he always sees me. I don't see God, but he always sees me. We're to walk around uh, with that knowledge in our lives and our hearts. And so Paul uh, gives us this command in this context of fear and trembling, work out your own salvation. Now this gets us worried, doesn't it? What does Paul mean by this? Salvation is by grace. And if you really want to know how you are to answer these kinds of tricky questions that can come up in Scripture, you need to approach issues with the confidence of gospel truth. You approach an issue saying, I know that salvation is by grace apart from works. And you find your answer from there. You don't strip away all that you already know and say you have to come at a question with sort of a a bare, no knowledge of anything, no presuppositions, no assumptions. No, we come at something with confidence. God says very clearly in his word that salvation is by grace. So Paul's not contradicting that here. We can say that right away. He's not saying something that contradicts salvation by grace. Paul wouldn't contradict himself. God doesn't contradict himself in his word. His word is without error. All that God breathes must be perfect. So that's not what he's doing. Is Paul adding to the message of salvation here? Is he sort of putting an addendum upon it? 
No, he's not doing that either. Is he saying you get into the sphere of salvation by grace, but then you stay in by works? No, he is not saying that at all. And that, in the last probably 50 years in Christianity, that has been an error that has continually tried to creep up. You get into salvation by grace, sort of the sphere of salvation. You stay in by works, a very dangerous teaching. And that's not what Paul is saying at all. These issues are sometimes settled by the best minds. So let me quote uh, my seminary professor, Dennis Johnson. Perhaps you remember him uh, preached here at my installation. This is what he says about this phrase. Paul's point is that Christ's saving work is comprehensive. Jesus rescues us not only from sin's guilt and punishment, but also from its controlling power. And not only from personal defilement, but also from interpersonal alienation. In rescuing us from sin's guilt and punishment, Christ does it all apart from us. He obeys in our place, he suffers in our place, he rises to victorious life in our place, and even gives us faith by his Spirit. On the other hand, in rescuing us from sin's controlling power, Christ still does it all, but he does it through us. His Spirit enlivens, enlists, and enables us as his allies and his servants. Our salvation from alienation includes not only reconciling us to God through the cross, but also reconciling us to one another through the cross. Remember that unity is really a central idea to this passage. Many of you will notice here, those of you raised on the beautiful, wonderful, beloved Heidelberg Catechism, you will notice a confluence here with a recurring theme of the Catechism. Something that comes up again and again. Freedom from sin's guilt and freedom from sin's power. The all-encompassing power of the work of Christ. The Puritan uh, Richard Sibbs says that all that we do in our spiritual life, we are patients and we are agents. We're like patients who are laying on the table. The doctor is working on us, right? It's him doing all the work. That's Christ reconciling us to God. That's Christ working in us. But... God works through us and makes us agents by enlivening us and listing us and calling us to spirit-filled obedience. Thus, in the Christian life, because it is done through us, God must work upon our wills so that through our wills we live according to how he has commanded us. That's what Paul says, to, to will and to work according to his good purposes. So God is at work shaping our affections, orienting our wills unto obedience. He aims for the heart. That's what God does. He aims for the heart, which is what every preacher ought to do as well. You aim for the heart because a heart inflamed with love for God will find the chief joy in life in serving God. This is why idolatry is such a stark picture of rebelling against God. When you love something more than God, you serve something more than God. When you love something more than God, you serve that something more than God. This is why we give ourselves to the study of the scriptures. This is why we give ourselves to prayer. This is why we give ourselves to uh, the ordinary means of grace on the Lord's day. Because it is in these ordinary means that God has promised to build us up. To teach us, to shape our hearts and our affections, to orient our wills, to enliven us, to be servants of him. For it is him doing all the work. But he does it through us in our sanctification. This is what Paul is calling us to do. 
In other words, the command, love God, love neighbor, live as citizens of heaven, which is what Paul has called us to do in Philippians 1.27, which really gives shape to this entire passage all the way to 2.18, live as citizens of heaven. It's rooted in the indicative of what Christ has already done, of what God has done for us in his Son. You, back to our catechism, all of those great questions, I think there's six or seven, maybe even eight uh, questions in the catechism of what does it profit us, Christ's resurrection or his ascension or the work on the Christ? What does it benefit us? It shows this exact theme that the commands of God, the therefores of the Christian life are rooted in what has been accomplished for you in Christ. And God gives you that power to to obey through those things. So for instance, what benefit do we receive from Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross? Uh, the, The catechism asks. Through Christ's death, our old nature is crucified, put to death, and buried with him. So that the evil desires of the flesh may no longer reign in us, but that we may offer ourselves to him as a sacrifice of thankfulness. Right? That is the power of Christ, the work of Christ being applied to us and to our lives and the power given to us to live in accordance with God's will. Furthermore, another catechism question, how does Christ's resurrection benefit us? His resurrect, by his resurrection, he has overcome death so that he can make us share in the righteousness which he has obtained for us by death. Second, by his power, we are raised up to a new life. And that's speaking mostly of sanctification. The resurrection of Christ has this benefit for us of raising us up to a new life. So Paul is not commending works-based salvation. What he, what he is commending is gospel-centered living gospel-centered living, flowing out of the finished work of Christ, Christ reconciles us to God apart from us, and he enlists us in God's service through us. He's doing all the work, but he's involving us in it. That is son-centered obedience. Secondly, others-centered contentment. Others-centered contentment. Really, what we're talking about here is unity. And here's where we see, once again, Paul drive home uh, the command to be unified. Stars are a wonderful thing. When you can see them, which is not here, of course, the horrible light pollution that you have in Chicagoland. But uh, when you can see them, they are glorious. There's a few things that stand out when you sort of stand under a, a night sky that's filled up with stars. Hopefully you've all had such an experience. The first is their majesty in the cosmos. Uh, there's something more than, than just kind of seeing the light in a, in a dark sky. There's, there's something more to it, something more aesthetic that probably goes beyond words. It, it does something to our souls when we take notice of them, doesn't it? To sort of be caught up in the majesty of the night sky. The heavens declare the glory of God. As Christians, we sort of take great joy in these sorts of truths. Isaiah chapter 40, to whom will you liken me that I should be like him, declares the Lord. Lift up your your eyes on high and see who created all of these. He who brings forth the starry host by number and calls them all by name because he is strong in might and great in power. Not one of them is missing. He knows all of the stars. He he moves them uh, with his power. Something particularly about 
the glory of stars, and this gets back to the light pollution problem of Chicagoland, is how they are canvassed across a dark sky. The darkness of the universe, when we are not illumined by the sun, just shows how majestic and how glorious these stars can be. This is basically the picture that Paul wants to give the Philippians as they think about their life in a dark world. Our translation captures it wonderfully here in this phrase by saying they shine like stars in the universe, which sort of gives you that cosmic flavor to what Paul is talking about. That you shine like stars in the universe. But the majestic and the glorious is trapped in tedious instruction, isn't it? We are told to do everything without complaining or arguing. So how do we shine? How do we shine like stars? Paul says, let me give you some very specific instructions. The Philippians, who were caught up in some divisions and some complaints and some arguments, he calls them to be unified. The first word, complaining, brings the example of the Israelites to the fore. This is the word that you often get grumbling. The Israelites who grumbled in the wilderness, who were complaining against Moses. Psalm 95 and Hebrews chapter 3 both make it clear that the Israelites complained, they grumbled, they lacked unity because of unbelief. They did not trust the God who was leading and feeding them. They did not trust Him. They did not have faith in Him or sufficient faith in Him. At least that's what was reigning in most of their hearts. Last week we talked about how a right knowledge of God's providence fuels our faith and it grows our contentment. And that is what is lying behind this passage here. So much of our instruction up to this point in Philippians has been about mirroring Christ's humility, about putting others' needs in front of our own. And that, of course, can only happen if you trust the God who leads and feeds you. If you are sold out in faith to Him and you know that He will provide, you can only be others-centered. You can only be content if you trust the God you serve, knows your needs, and can administer them according to His sovereign power and knowledge. Christian steadfastness and contentment, it flows freely, flows freely when a heart is centered upon the eternity-defining work of Christ. Christ followers need not be engaged in the rat race of status, which would have been hugely central to the life in Philippi, which is still largely central in our culture, in our day today, the rat race of status being recognized for this or that, the other having achievements, seeking vain glory. Jesus has already won for us and given to us by grace the highest status that anyone could ever dream of. That's why Paul says, don't get caught up, don't get bogged down in either seeking the high position in society that you want or being downtrodden because of the low society, low position in society that you have. You've already been giving something greater than anything this society can confer upon you. And this is where Paul's picture of the stars becomes sharper. Because just as he envisions bright and shining stars, glorious and majestic, so he envisions the dark sky of the world. He says this generation is crooked and twisted. Those who know not Christ, those who are obsessed with status and high social honor, when that race breaks down or when they don't achieve what they want to, 
in this rat race, what does one do? They revert to complaining and arguing. In today's society, the field has changed. The game is no different. Identity politics seeks to exalt the self in such a way that uh, the universe itself must be conformed to the reality that I'm feeling inside me right now on a particular day. There's another word that's come into vogue recently. Maybe you've heard it, maybe not. Intersectionality. Someone's social value is based upon how many groups of oppression one participates in. And then when a certain group does not get the recognition that they want, they resort to arguing and complaining. Victimhood in our world is the highest virtue. Why? Because contentment and gratitude are scarce. Because love of the status that God gives to you in Christ is scarce. There's a book out there, it's called The Culture of Complaint, talking about how the American experiment is sort of fraying apart, it's coming apart because everyone is resorting to complaining when they don't get what they want. But if God has loved you, if Christ has served you, if you have been given the greatest blessing and eternal salvation freely by the humble king, how can that not shape your generosity, your humility, and your others-centered contentment. One scholar says that the problem in society today, the reason we keep on coming up against one another, is that people are on a quest for cosmic justice in this world. But the beauty of the gospel is that in Christ, you are given that very thing. So just as an athlete sits down to enjoy victory after a championship game, So we too can enjoy the victory of our king. But there is no next season for us, right? Our walk in this world is a victory march of faith. Where we trust that God works this contentment in us to be others-centered. To put others' needs in front of our own. That's how uh, the unity within the church can shine like uh, like stars in a dark night sky. That we don't get bogged down with all of these things that we see around us. That we see our identity in the one who is supremely exalted. That we desire our life to be found in Christ above all else. Paul then contrasts the darkness of the world and the culture of complaint with the bright light of of godliness and piety rooted in in scripture. He piles up several terms on top of one another to make a distinct point. A blameless, pure, without fault. In order to make this point, the life you live is extremely important as a testimony in an unbelieving world. The kind of contentment you walk around with is something that will be noticed if you do it rightly. In a world that craves contentment but never gets it, don't you think that living out that contentment towards one another and to others will speak volumes to those around you? Yes, shine like stars in a night sky. Don't you think that's why our catechism says, uh, or that's a big part of what our catechism means when it says that we win our neighbors over to Christ. It's living life in this world shaped by contentment found in Christ. Daniel chapter 12 looks forward to sort of the latter days. It's a fascinating passage. It says like this, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above 
and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. To be blameless, pure, without fault. Again, Paul's not commending a workspace salvation. He's saying the Spirit can create in you the desires and the will and the joy to serve Him, to put aside your agenda, to put aside your preferences, to serve others, to serve for the glory of God. That will shine in a dark world. That will shine. So other-centered contentment, finally then as we close, joyful sacrifice. Joyful sacrifice. One term I'd like to give a little more thought to in verse 15 And it leads us into this last point in verses 17 through 18. Paul says we may become children of God without fault. Children of God without fault. The first uh, thing to notice about that is that as the children of God, we reflect the holiness of God. As his children, we are to reflect his character, right? Child uh, lives like the parents. But it also has connection to the Old Testament to unblemished animals, reserved for the altar of sacrifice. In the temple, this was the term in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, given to unblemished animals reserved for sacrifice. And that is what Paul is speaking of here, especially at the end of the passage, verses 17 and 18. He goes through his own situation once again. I may be poured out as a drink offering, he says. Here he's speaking of the possibility of his being martyred, which eventually, of course, he was martyred. He lost his life because of the faith. But he gives another picture from the temple. What is a drink offering? A drink offering was something that existed in the temple. It was a libation poured out in the midst of another sacrifice. When another sacrifice, when an animal was sacrificed on the altar, sometimes there would be a drink offering poured out. Upon the altar. So it wasn't a central offering, it accompanied another offering. And what Paul says here is that even if he is martyred for his faith, even if his life is taken from him, his life will be a drink offering that accompanies the sacrificial work of the Philippians as they give of themselves, as they freely come to the altar to make themselves a sacrifice for their God. Right? Romans 12.1 Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This is what Paul is calling them to do. Where he says, the sacrifice, the sacrifice and service coming from your faith. Really what that means is saying the sacrificial service or the service-oriented sacrifice of your faith. Your death that you die to yourselves. Paul's greatest joy was that those whom he had discipled and trained would freely and joyfully give themselves on the altar in service to God. That they would joyfully regard their lives as nothing, as no price to pay compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus their Lord. The Apostle John says the same thing in in 3 John. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. No greater joy than to hear that my children are living with others-centered contentment. I have no greater joy than hearing that they are grasping to live as Christ and to die as gain. Giving up our preferences, our, our agendas. These are all simple things to the one who has seen the glory of Christ. And it was Paul's great hope that he would see his people living this way. Philippians cha- or 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 Paul says, what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. 
Paul boasted in the cross, and he also boasted or took pride in uh, that which was actually eternally valuable in seeing his spiritual children walking in the truth. You boast in the things of this world, you boast in your riches, you boast in your societal achievements, all of that will come to nothing. Boast in the cross, boast in Jesus Christ, and take pride in seeing others, the people of God, growing in their faith and their desire and zeal to live for the glory of God. Self-centered pride and honor is vainglory. Having pride in the things that actually matter eternally, that is what we ought to be doing. Paul knew that when he gave his accounting before God, what was it going to be all about? How did the sheep that you shepherded, how were they living? How did they live? How faithful were they? Were they filled with a zeal for walking in the light and walking in the truth? The shepherd leads you to the altar. That's one of the mysteries of the Christian life. He's our shepherd. He leads us and he feeds us, but he's leading us to the altar. He wants us to freely come in the joyful sacrifice of our hearts, to be filled with joy for what he has done, for awe for what he has done, and to give ourselves, to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. It goes against the grain of the world's logic, and even still, Paul can still rejoice. He says, I rejoice in this. Why? Because Jesus had emptied himself. Because Paul had been shown something greater. Because he knew that God's promise was not to preserve us from death, but to his heavenly kingdom. What a great truth. What a, what a marvelous truth. To be captivated by this truth means that you will shine as stars in the skies of a dark world. The night is here, but the morning is soon at hand. Seek sun-centered obedience. Seek other-centered contentment. And may that lead you to the altar uh, to be a joyful sacrifice to your God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you. And we are humbled by these words because we know we are not adequate uh, to, to do them. And thus we need you to be the one to continue working in us. Uh, we ask that you would do that for us. And we pray that you would get all the glory as well. Forgive us, cleanse us, build us up, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.